This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it, help spread the word, and also take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Vikinger Olafsson is an incredible pianist. He was born in Iceland, and he told me that growing up in Iceland in the 1990s had its pros and cons. The story's pretty fascinating. You're going to hear about it in this edition of New Classical Tracks, and also hear about his new recording, where he helps you to reimagine Mozart. New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Vikinger, you were just talking about doing some live performances, and you're in Iceland. Are you talking about performing in the hall that you helped uh, christen when it first opened? Yes, that's true. Harpa Concert Hall, uh, one of my favorite places in the whole world, and one of the best concert halls in the world, which is crazy because we are a tiny country of 350,000 people, but we are blessed and very lucky to have this house that was opened 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, over the weekend, I played uh, four nights in a row. The first night I played with the orchestra, uh, this fantastic piano concerto by Thomas Ades called In Seven Days, one of the most complex works possible to play uh, for piano and orchestra. Thomas, who's one of the greatest composers, of course, in the world, he was there to conduct himself, which was absolutely a thrilling experience. And then the night after Friday and Saturday and Sunday, I played three times my uh, Mozart and Contemporaries recital program. And, you know, come to think of it, I played it for like 5,000 people or something combined. And then I was thinking, that's like almost 2% of the whole nation. <laughs> so that's like if you would play like for 5 million Americans or whatever. <laughs> but, but but no, it, it was a great weekend and, and super intense. And in the middle of it all, maybe from overwork, I actually had a little bit of a flu. And of course, I freaked out and thought it might maybe COVID and had, you know, two tests. And no, it wasn't. But 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 that just adds to to the whole the whole the whole thing. But it went great and and yeah. So so it's it's been really eventful in the last few days here. And you also had your debut at the BBC Proms this past summer. What was that experience like? That's a, that was a special one um, because you know it was it was in August and it was still you know the season hadn't started yet quite, and it felt very much like return to the world as we knew it um it's royal albert hall in london and it was more or less packed it was like five thousand people there and uh and just just the atmosphere of being in a room with that many people with the music that we love uh and and to be able to 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 bring that to the people and it was also on like live tv and it was i mean that they told me afterwards that reach was like 175 million people or something crazy like that uh that that day and and to be able to bring music to that kind of mass and to have a full house of people it just reminded me what it's all about the communal aspect of music making that's the bbc proms it's the kind of togetherness of of experience that we haven't had in in covid and i played bach and mozart you know these two two piano concertos and those two composers that maybe are closer to my heart than any other composers so it was all very significant for me and 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 i, I felt also from the people in the hall just a feeling of being again in a 
packed Albert Hall, you know, it wasn't taken for granted by anyone there, I think. And that just made it all the more intense. And you could feel it sort of tangibly in the in the listening. I, I think, and I mean, people commented that rarely had the Albert Hall been so silent because it usually isn't when you have 5,000 people in a room. Maybe it's also because nobody wants to cough because everyone then thinks they have COVID or something, you know, but but it's, uh, it, 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 everything came, yeah, it was, it, was, it was just a very intense evening, uh, but, but a beautiful experience. And I had the Philharmonia, one of my favorite orchestras in the world, the Philharmonia of, of London with Pavel Yerovi conducting. So, so it was it was a beautiful night. Night. Are you scheduled to return next year? Yeah, they offered me. Uh, I just need to see if I can make it. Uh, you know, these days everything is sort of so packed, and so many things have been pushed back a season or two because of all the cancellations in the last you know twelve or sixteen months. Uh, so that, like for instance, this season. You know, I'm right now on on Monday. We're speaking, but you know, I, I I'll play two concerts tomorrow and 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 Wednesday, and then one on Friday, which means I'll, I'll have played like seven concerts in eight days. You know, come Friday, that's insane. It's like doing two seasons in one. Somehow everything has been pushed and added. Um, so so our lives uh, aren't much easier, but at the same time, it's so thrilling to have concerts again that that you somehow get through it. I want you to talk briefly about growing up in Iceland and how that has impacted who you are as an artist. Because I know at the time you were growing up in the 90s, you've said that you didn't have access to the same things that young artists have access to now. How do you think that impacted you, either in a positive or maybe a not-so-positive way? It's a great question. Um, to start with the positives, that's what we're all supposed to do, right? I think that the, the good thing about it is that you have a certain sense of freedom and you have to find your own path and you're not forced to compete every year against the same you know, people in your age group in all these national competitions. There were no such thing as piano competitions in Iceland and there aren't almost, you know, I, I never did anything like it. It was never a part of me. And, you know, there was never any pressure of, 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 of really... You know, no one told me that you have to practice three hours a day when you're 12, otherwise you are, you know, missing the train. Uh, that was never the message. The message was more like, you know, play if you well, play play for fun. Music should be fun and it should be elevated and it should, you know, bring us above every day. That was always the message. My mother's a piano teacher and a very good one, but but she never pushed me. She would rather be like, go out and play football with your friends, you know, be a normal kid too. Um and and but you know the not so positive was perhaps that I didn't have access to the kind of concerts that that we have now. You know, in the nineties, people didn't do what they do now, which is basically to jump on a plane and fly to London or wherever they want to go to see a concert for a day and then come back. That just didn't happen in the nineties, unless you were like a billionaire or something. Um, no one did that, uh, and and so I didn't see all my heroes live until I was quite quite old you know i mean a teenager like when i moved to new york when i was 18 that's what i did two or three nights every week i would just go to the met opera to new york phil to carnegie hall i was always there and i saw all my heroes finally but i didn't in iceland there was maybe once a year that kind of great presence i remember those concerts so vividly and maybe i remember them more specifically than i would have otherwise if i would have been spoiled with choice and i remember for instance when yevgeny kissin came when i was 12 um, and he would have been then 24 or 5 in 1996 
And I, I remember that concert. I remember the program. I remember the seat I was sitting in. I remember everything about it. And I remember meeting him afterwards and the kind of heartbeat I had. So, so there are pros and cons. But of course, you know, being exposed to that kind of culture in a bigger city certainly has its advantages. Uh, and, and, and that's what I had to sort of catch up on later in life. I also, you know, had to start really practice. You know, I got into Juilliard. I was already playing very difficult repertoire, Ligeti Etudes and all the, you know, the big concertos and all that stuff. But at the same time, I just had never, ever worried about anyone else but myself. I had never thought so much about what my my, my fellow age age group were, were were doing and then i came there and everybody was just playing all the chopin etudes all the all the hardest concertos everybody just literally played the rachmaninoff third concerto i mean anyone who didn't wasn't taken seriously at juilliard <laughs> and and and, and I, I didn't play it at that time so i i started learning it but 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 there was a lot of catch up to do but in the in the other direction uh I, I had more freedom and and perhaps could find my voice in a, in a different way and 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 in a freer way than if I had come from Moscow or Beijing or New York or or London or Paris, uh, you know. So so it was uh, maybe more anarchy in my musical upbringing, but but in in the long term I think it's good because I was never forced to practice and it was always something that came from within an urge to practice a, a wish to 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 play music. And so when I got to Juilliard. I started to practice like six hours a day, literally every day. And I was known for it at school. People were laughing at me because I just practiced. I worked so hard. At the same time, my fellow classmates in my year, I remember many of them stopped practicing because finally they were free from the influence of their mothers or their fathers or whoever it was. Uh, and, and they, what I did, many of them were they basically bought PlayStation, you know, machines and they, and they, maybe they started drinking, they, they, they started to experiment. I had done all of that. I had played a lot of video games in my youth and I had, I had done my fair share of experimenting with all sorts of things. Um, so let's not go into too much detail, but, but so, 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 so when I was, when I was 18, I, I, I felt so ready and so mature, <laughs> ready to, 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 to just, to just have a live in music. Let's talk about your new recording. On this new release, which features Mozart and some of his contemporaries, you're out to change people's perceptions of Mozart. Why? Well, I think we all come to Mozart with a certain amount of baggage, you know. And I think, you know, that that differs for each and every one of us. What kind of baggage? But for instance, you know, if you if you're a piano student and you play maybe the easy pieces of Mozart when you're seven or six or eight, um, already then your teachers are sort of enthrusting the myth of Mozart upon you. You know, they're telling you about his unparalleled genius and almost like scaring you with the idea of Mozart. And that I certainly was scared with, with the idea of Mozart. You know, I went to see the Magic Flute when I was seven, the first opera I ever saw. And I remember just being pale afterwards thinking oh my god he must have written this when he was seven what have i done with my life you know <laughs> how have i spent my time uh and and of course mozart wrote the magic flute sort of shortly before the end of his life and it takes everything from his life into it but but the feeling was mozart did everything when he was seven or eight he was that kind of prodigy which is far away from the truth of course uh, and so so the the whole album it's kind of an exploration of that, you know, not Mozart the Wunderkind, but rather the mature Mozart. And that actually, I believe, is, is the Mozart that makes the Mozart that we know today and what we think of when we think of Mozart. You know, it's the Mozart that really 
traveled a huge distance in his art in the last 10 years of his life as big a distance as any 10 years of Beethoven's career you know uh, the transition and transformation of his music in these 10 years is simply immense uh, it everything becomes much more complex multi-dimensional more polyphonic more experimental more expressive bigger and bolder in scale everything everything is there and he's really gone so far ahead of the musical environment of his day, the 1780s, and in a sense, the society of his day, the 1780s, which still holds on to the old aristocracy. We have the French Revolution in 1789, two years before Mozart dies, and after that, the aristocracy starts to crumble a little bit. But Mozart was ahead of it. He had the spirit of Beethoven in him already. He was a free artist, and he fought for his musical and personal freedom in that decade. And and you hear it in the music, and you and you see it in the live, and you and you read it in the letters. That's one of the most incredible decades in the life of any composer. If he Mozart had died in 1781 and not 91, so when he was 25 and not 35, uh, he would not be the Mozart that we know. You know, he would be a great composer and undoubtedly one of the greatest prodigies in history, with Mendelssohn probably. But he wouldn't be Mozart, you know. But Mozart became Mozart to me in these, these last 10 years, and that's what the album is about. When you were eight years old, you were kind of in a fight with Mozart over his so-called easy sonata in C major. Can you talk about that frustration that you had with that sonata and how you've come to terms with it on this new recording? Yes, it's my first real struggle in music. You know, before, you know, I, I played that piece, I felt very good about myself at the piano. I just thought I was a great pianist when I was six and seven <laughs> and five. I thought, you know, I, I thought I was the best at the piano. I could really play the piano well and and, and, I, and everybody applauded me and it was all just a good fun and, and a big game, you know, and I love to do it to impress people. And then I played this piece. And for the first time in my life, I realized all my imperfections. I mean, so many of them. Nothing seemed to work. Everything seemed a little bit sort of, how to say, unfocused, imperfect. Every scale was slightly uneven. I thought my Alberti bass in the left hand, the opening measures, was never beautiful enough, never smooth enough. Everything was just wrong. And I think Mozart's perfection and incredibly immaculate uh, sense of structure and proportion just highlighted all the weaknesses in my own in my own art and it's the first moment when i realized how far you have to go with piano playing and how 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 demanding you have to be with yourself so when you play mozart you know it's difficult because of his incredible facility and perfection and 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 you have to try to attain and to sort of aspire to that level of course you never will but that has to be the goal which is why it's always a difficult and lofty undertaking to play which is why i waited until now when i'm 37 to actually release an album of mozart i've had these different experiences with Mozart throughout my whole life. I mean, when I was eight, you know, with that C major sonata, I had an outburst of violence where I actually took a pencil and sort of scratched out the whole score. And, you know, it was just pretty, pretty violent, really, that's the word. And my mother came home, she wasn't at home, and, and she saw what I had done to this sort of sacredly beautiful score, and she was furious with me. And she had me, you know, erase it and, and really gave me 
uh, a big lesson on this and made me still play from the scarred score. And, you know, from that point on, uh, my relationship with Mozart certainly went much better. Uh, and I just realized, well, I just have to put in a lot more work, you know, I just... Uh, and you can't over-practice Mozart, you know, it's like, you can't hide, you can't, you can't just put the pedal down, everything you do is, is hurt, it's, it is like Olympic gymnastics or something like that, you know, it's, it's, uh, but at the same time, it's also just the most poetic and, and personal thing you can do in the world. But I've had these periods in my life when I've really taken Mozart to different extremes. You know, really, in my teens, I would only play the pieces of Mozart in minor. I would focus on the dramatic Mozart, the A minor sonata, you know, those kinds of, you know, the pounding A minor chords. And I would play it really over the top, you know, and I would play it. I'm pretty sure if I would hear that today, I would just be sort of mortified by it. But I, but I, I, had, to, I had to have that period. And then I had a period when I would bring it to the absolute extreme the you know opposite direction where I would try to approach it as much as I could from a sense of classicism you know never overdoing anything and, and I'm pretty sure definitely underdoing much of it so it was too kind of passive but focusing only on the musical architecture and it's only in recent years that I felt you know been able to sort of make sense of all of it to to, to myself and, and, and been satisfied with it the kind of overwhelming operatic drama of, of Mozart and combine that with the kind of incredibly crystalline sense of, 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 of perfect structure and, and proportion. You are highlighting what you believe are some of the best composers and the best music of the 1780s. And so there's some other com- composers highlighted. And one is Galuppi. You've said that you really identify with his music, perhaps even more than Cimarosa. Can you talk a little bit about what resonated with you with their pieces? Because you had to read through a lot of music by Cimarosa before you even found a couple of sonatas that you thought you wanted to include. Yeah, to be honest, I actually read through all the pieces of Cimarosa and Galuppi and Karl Friedrich Mandelbach and literally every single sonata of Haydn as well. You know, in preparing for the album, I simply played through everything. Uh, to make sense of that whole period and to have an overview before I selected these 84 minutes to make up my album. Um, the Galuppi, it just speaks to me. I think he's at his best. It's very prophetic music. Uh, the album opens on a Galuppi piece, the F minor Andante Spiritoso from the F minor Sonata. And that music is, it is music of the future. It's music without melody it's just music that's just it's it's almost like minimalism you know it's almost like it's from the late 20th century it's just these hypnotic repeated chordal patterns and harmonic progressions really without melody Uh, and, and it's so beautiful and it's so apprehensive and just made me at least question myself. I was like, do I know what was happening in the world, you know, in the musical world 
in the 1780s. Where is this music coming from? How did I not know this piece? It's certainly one of the great pieces of the era, and almost nobody has recorded it. You know, so it's uh, that. That's why I chose that for the opening. And then the other galoupi I have is a C minor, very short movement that could almost have been written by Arvo Perth. Again, so futuristic with these kind of frozen landscape arpeggios and this kind of frozen uh, atmosphere of C minor, which I use as a kind of a prelude before the great C minor sonata of, of Mozart. Cimarosa is a different story. He wasn't, I would say, he wasn't the same level composer as Galuppi, but he was a great opera composer, and at his best he could write incredibly moving, kind of greatest hits, actually, melodies. And the piano sonatas, keyboard sonatas, the best of them have that element. Um, when I played them first, they were just too kind of sparse, and I thought too elementary, had to make sense on the modern piano or even on the on the forte piano, to be honest. But the the melodies just stayed with me. I kept sort of thinking about them and almost humming them, and and then I decided to give it a go and I harmonized them and I just completely rearranged them and almost rewrote them. Uh, so so what you hear on my recording is actually quite different from the printed score. But I actually think doing that would not have surprised Cimarosa that much. Perhaps exactly what I've done, you know, would have been more futuristic than he would have expected, because the instrument offers the modern instrument offers new possibilities that Cimarosa could not have predicted. But at the same time, you were expected, you know, with this kind of music, you know, in the period, you were expected to allow yourself to have a more uh, compositional approach to the music making and to musical interpretation. Uh, people were freer in, and more liberal in their choices and you know could take more composing license sometimes with the music of others. Uh, Mozart certainly did that. You know, the first piano concertos of Mozart are actually not by Mozart, but by other composers. He's just rearranged them, you know, for, for, for piano and orchestra. And, and Bach did this as well, you know, just stealing other people's music. Uh, so it, it's an interesting question, you know, this arrangement thing and, and, and how much liberty to allow yourself. But I think in general, these days, uh, we are too afraid and, 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 and dogmatic about those things in, in, in the current performance practice. In putting this recording together, what did you discover about yourself? Oh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> so many things, you know. I, I discovered that I didn't really know what that end of the classical era was in piano. There was so much great music that I had no idea about. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, and I think I discovered, well, about myself... It's always that quest of finding the perfect proportion between 
freedom and discipline, you know, the poetry and the spontaneity, but also the musical architecture. And Mozart, like Bach, he he becomes your musical mirror. He shows you where you are and he reveals all your strength all your strengths but also he reveals all your weaknesses so i i i i discovered quite a bit of both strengths and weaknesses as i always do um but then you know maybe what i was fascinated by most was the kind of dialogue i feel mozart was having with the contemporaries with his great leading contemporaries musical composers and the music of his day and 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 how how sometimes when we look back it looks like it's only mozart and maybe haydn you know in that period but but it wasn't so simple and history in a way is much richer than we can we can ever fully understand and the more time that passes the fewer the figures that stand out you know and and the simpler it all looks you know it's like when we read about Rome or something like that, you know, ancient Rome, it looks fairly simple. You have a few figures, but of course there were, you know, there were thousands of them. But, you know, it's, it's it, we, we still have a chance to rescue a few of them from Mozart's shadow, even if there's a reason why Mozart's shadow is bigger and longer than, than any of the other ones. Icelandic pianist Vikingur Olafsson and his new recording Mozart and Contemporaries. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for New Classical Tracks. I'm Julia Macher, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. Mm-hmm.